0: Welcome to Go Beyond Fundraising, the podcast that's here to address your challenges head on. Brought to you by the combined forces of Pursuant and Allegiance Group, we're diving deep into the world of marketing and fundraising to help you overcome obstacles, unlock new opportunities, and make an even greater impact on the world. Evan Wildstein is a non with 20 years of experience in fundraising and strategy. He has worked with organizations like the Juilliard School, Rice University, and Asia Society to raise funds and develop unique programs. In addition to his work in social impact, Evan has coached organizations on board development and talent growth, commissioned operas, and produced educational programs. In this episode, we sat down with Evan to talk about his new book, The Nonprofiteers Fundraising Field Guide 30 Practical Ways to Boost Philanthropy Through Servant Leadership. Evan, welcome to the Fundraising Today show and our podcast. Um, we're really excited to have you joining us today to talk about your new book, which is titled The Nonprofiteers Fundraising Field Guide 30 Practical Ways to Boost Philanthropy Through Servant Leadership. And I know because I read your book, the hyphen is really important. I'd love, before we kind of dive into our discussion, to learn a little bit more about you and how you came to write this book.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks for correctly pronouncing what I chose as a very clunky title for a book in both the heading and the subheading. I self-proclaimed, call myself a non-profiteer, and I sort of stumbled into this. We were talking just a moment ago about my early days and years as a lead singer of different kinds of groups and ensembles. And I think that presented a good transition for me into what ended up being like 10 or 15 years later as a frontline fundraiser. But this idea of comfort in front of people, being able to have conversations, whether I'm singing to them or asking them about how, you know, organization changed their life. But when I was itty bitty Evan, I did a lot of performing. And then at some point near the end of my undergrad years, with the strong encouragement of my parents, stuck through undergrad, you know, just in case the music thing didn't work out because it didn't. And it doesn't for like 99.9% of folks. And I landed at a great little role at the Juilliard School up in New York City, coordinating a youth outreach program for kids in the five boroughs. And then that sort of just rolled into all these different interesting opportunities around New York City and here in Houston, Texas, where I'm currently based. So that's been the last 20 plus years of me.
0: And you're also a new dad, as we have been speaking about too.
1: That's really, that's the cement under everything right now. He's just about to be four months old now and he's wonderful.
0: Well, that's such a wonderful and stressful and tiring time of life. So I'm sure you're just soaking up all these moments. When we talk about servant leadership in the book, you say that a lot of people probably reduce this to the concept of put others first. And so what is your view of servant leadership and why is kind of that sort of short definition that I put forward, kind of a limiting view of it?
1: It's limiting. It's also not Wrong entirely. I think the question, and if you, if I could flip this for a moment, the question that I always love to ask people is: when we think about feelings that get evoked from different things, for you, what does the notion of servant leadership evoke for you? Is it that idea of putting others first, or do you have other conceptions of that concept?
0: Yeah, I think I think. Well, my view is a little bit skewed now since I have I've gotten to see the punchline since I've read your book, but I probably would have would have thought about what Jim Collins talks about in good to great at the level five leader. So that's the person who is able to kind of blend the professional tenacity that you need to be able to accomplish goals in the workplace with humility.
1: Yeah, very true. And Collins is such a great person to point to, which if you recall from the book, all the folks that the great organizational minds, Jim Collins, recently Simon Sinek, Brene Brown, Ken Blanchard, They were all folks who sort of came up under the Robert Greenleaf school of how business should be good. And Robert Greenleaf is the guy who coined servant leadership in 1970 in an essay called The Servant as Leader. But the notion, if we do servant dash or hyphen leadership, there is what I find when it's practiced well and when people lean into it, there's a connotation between those two words. The overwhelming philosophy that is a bit reductive that servant leadership is about the entirety of everyone other than you. You know, you serve from the back. It's like that wolf pack that leads and like the real lead wolf is in the back, making sure that the, the slowest and least fortunate among them go from the front. But that's limiting in its ability that we all only have so much of our batteries that we can give to other people. There's only so many hours in the day we can work to help make sure other people are being grown. One of the core behaviors in this philosophy, which I think you and I will talk a little bit about the 10 or the ones that might seem interesting for you, is this notion of healing. And in the book and in other research and writing, I point to a couple different ways that healing can be In an intrinsic thing. Healing can be how you repair some things that might have gone wrong or poorly with donors or otherwise. But when Bob Greenleaf wrote about healing, he left a lot of these little Easter eggs in his writing. He talked about healing oneself inside first and foremost as a primary motivation for those who aspire to certain leadership. And so we think about healing often as this outward thing. And as fundraisers, especially, we're all about the other, you know, make sure the donor has a great experience, make sure everyone else is put up on the pedestal. The notions of burnout have become like way, way, way too quickly ascended over the past three or four years, especially. But that idea of healing is so integral to the philosophy of making sure that as we're putting other people, not first, but putting their needs as equally important, that we're focusing inward, that we're taking breaks, that we're making the space between meetings so we have a moment to go to the restroom, grab a water, that we're taking the PTO days that are gifted to us by many of our organizations. It's free money. That What does the research say? There's like $65 billion plus of PTO that Americans don't take every year. I have to imagine most of that comes from the social impact sector, but I don't know if those numbers are accurate.
0: Yes, you touched on many things that I definitely want to go into deeper uh, in our conversation. And there was an example in the book that really stuck with me, which was Journey to the East, I believe, where there was a character in the book who is a servant and how the whole mission of this kind of expedition falls apart as soon as the servant is no longer with the group.
1: I could talk about that a little bit from my my understanding. So Herman Hess wrote Journey to the East. And this was the book that really gave Bob Greenleaf his fundamental notion of servant leadership. The servant's name was Leo. And in the book, it's this sort of mythical group on a mythical journey to a mythical East. Like Herman Hesse probably had ideas about this, but Greenleaf posited that it was probably an internal view of Herman Hesse's own journey in his life. But the servant disappears the group falls apart you find out at the end of the book that leo the servant was the de facto leader of the group and it's the thing that gave greenleaf his his fundamental idea the the one as i think about that story the one thing that has stuck with me a little uncomfortably is this notion that in servant leadership when we i sort of look at the behaviors that i focus on as a continuum i don't list them that way in the book the book is more like a great ingredients list but the continuum which for me begins with this idea of conceptualization and ending with building community or a built community In the ideal servant leader setup, and I don't think I've ever said this out loud, the group shouldn't have fallen apart because the servant left. The group, I like to say a built community builds community. And so if of the service mindset, you grow the team around you. When you as the lead influencer, and that's leadership I always define as influence, not necessarily the position you hold in an organization, you can have a really influential leading person who is a manager. They may not be the CEO. But when that person steps away or leaves or takes FMLA or departs the organization entirely, the built community should continue building itself. It's sort of like soil that is cultivated and continues to grow. It's like the one one and only micro gripe I really have ever had with Bob Greenleaf's stuff is that that one little thing about the servant leaving and then things fall apart is, in some ways, to me, a bit of a stretch to what the ethos of servant-leadership can and should be.
0: Another example that get, came to my mind, and I think as, as someone who grew up reading these books and watching these movies, is Samwise Gamgee from The Lord of the Rings. Of Right at the end of the book, when everything seems like the mission is not going to go forward and you know Frodo is too tired to carry the ring anymore, Sam just picks him up and carries him the rest of the way. And the whole like trilogy is about the group effort that it is to stop this horrible thing from happening and how even when the group gets separated at the end of the, the first book, the first movie, they have all of the ingredients that they need to be able to stop the forces of darkness at the end of the movie. And it's because they all embodied something that was really important to that mission.
1: I love that. That, that could be a great book. The spiritual servant leads their- ethos of J.R.R. R. Tolkien's timeless classic that takes 900 pages to read. <laughs> it's
0: worth the read, though. <laughs> Speaking of Robert Gre- Greenleaf, you mentioned him and many other wonderful authors and thinkers in the book. And and I loved that the book really, truly is a field guide. It's It's a handy something. It's a handy small volume that you can pull out and use as a jumping off point for other thinkers, other writers who have gone in much more depth on many of these different concepts. But the person that you reference the most is Robert Greenleaf. So before we kind of get into these 10 traits that you outline in the book that define and underpin a servant leader, who was Robert Greenleaf and kind of what was the nature of his work?
1: There are a couple people in life that I wish I could you know who 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 would you have a glass of wine with, or who would you have a coffee with? Bob Greenleaf would have been that person. He was forever, you know, a hundred years ago, an in-house de facto management consultant. He was a full time staffer at AT and T, which at the time was a very different company than the one who may or may not be your cell phone provider. The The lore goes that they kept trying to promote him into senior executive roles. And just his speed and his comfort and his spirit was all about that notion of gardening people around him. Like he made everyone in his orbit better. And I think that really helped fill his cup. And so for 40 some odd years, he was at at and near his retirement in the 1960s, 70s, when the world was going through this major change. I mean, I think if you look at the 60s, 70s, and then now, it's probably two of the, the starkest times of just upheaval. You know, there's like drought, famine, war happening now, but like the civil rights movement, all the other cultural updates that were happening in the environments of all around the world in the 1960s. So he was this AT&T in-house management guy retired started this very forward-looking second wind of his career he founded this organization at the time called i believe the center for applied ethics not as sexy as the robert k greenleaf center for servant leadership which i think is now known as but he did a lot of post work consulting with not-for-profit organizations for-profit organizations he was funded a lot by the Lilly endowment you know, that of the Lilly School of Philanthropy to turn all this stuff into good, practicable things. So there's a big, strong nonprofit connection. But he was this just warm, thoughtful, high-level thinking guy. And that's one of the, the things that I think is missing from a lot of the, the research, academic, scholarship on servant leadership is pulling his heady brilliance down from the clouds through raindrops into things that you can actually do with it. I mean, he, he he spoke and wrote so eloquently about things like listening and empathy and healing, but so much of it was just kept very high level because I think that's how his brain probably was. He was someone who I don't believe felt the need to tell people how to do things. He would he would give you a great canvas with warmth and forward looking, and then allow people to fill in the gaps himself. That's why I think it is such a powerful philosophy. Servant leadership, but also it's one of the reasons that I think other people like the Jim Collins, Ken Branchers, Brene Brown's have like taken it, done their own thing with it, and kind of made it a bit more sellable. Greenleaf, I think, suffered from the uh, maybe not working with the great marketing folks because like it's the thing that I think should have and probably can still save the social impact sector. You know, if fundraisers do it, maybe they wouldn't leave the roles every 16 to 18 months. But that was Greenleaf in a nutshell, and he inspired a ton of great people. One of them is a guy named Larry Spears, who was a mentor of mine in grad school, who I've stayed in touch with. He's the person who took all of Greenleaf stuff and distilled down all of that great thought leadership into those 10 traits that I focus on in the book. But Bob Greenleaf, just you know, he'd be up there with like the Mother Teresa's and and the other folks that you would just want to sit and and be still with.
0: Well, thank you so much for for that background information. And you touched on it a couple of times, and I'd love to go ahead and jump to that. But the elephant in the room that I think we're all staring at is this concept of burnout, especially within the social impact sector, as you've referenced a few times. I think many nonprofiteers, as you call them, and that's just anybody who works in the nonprofit social impact space, they feel the pressure to do more, work harder, stretch themselves and their teams thin to ensure the most possible resources go towards the mission. And as we've seen, that leads to really high turnover um, and many talented people leaving the nonprofit space altogether due to burnout. And I think at a time right now when we are seeing nonprofits being stretched even thinner because of lower dollar giving or people shifting their giving into different things like crowdfunding or just peer-to-peer giving through things like Venmo. I think a lot of nonprofits are feeling that pinch even more, and that is potentially leading to even more burnout. So taking all that context into mind, what are some applications or ways that you see servant leadership directly addressing this problem?
1: Gosh, that's the the biggest question there is out there, but it's one that's so important to ask because... There are a couple of peers that I have in this sector that we, those of us who are not, have not moved to the sort of consulting vendor side of things. And, and all of that work is super important. But there's a few of us who are loud and perhaps stubborn enough who are still in-house full-time at nonprofits who are thinking like, how do we help till the dirt in the gardens that we are currently living in? And sometimes I was exchanging on LinkedIn earlier with a, a great guy named Ted Vaughn who's who does work with his agency is called Historic and he's got an interesting podcast out on nonprofit futurism that the burnout issue it's been around forever i mean i think as long as social impact work and this notion of like volunteerism you know we how many nonprofits are when you look at the financial breakdown, something like 90% of nonprofits in the us have budgets under a million bucks and like 75% of them have budgets under 100,000 so we know like most shops are not the giant like 150 person healthcare fundraising teams or higher education institutions that have development alumni relation teams that are like 80 to 100 people. So most organizations are working over capacity with what needs to get done because of this intrinsic feeling like if I don't lead the work, a poor person or a homeless person or you know, insert the mission served individual will be worse off. And one of the things that has struck me in these 10 traits of servant leadership. And the way that I've been reframing it a little bit is this first notion, what Bob Greenleaf called the prime leadership talent. For him, that was conceptualization and conceptualizing. That's one of the 10 core behaviors I focus on. But that's the place where I start to think through conceptually. It's not like at that point, you're trying to solve a problem. It's thinking like you're an organization that is performing at the level of having five fundraisers, but you've only got two fundraisers. You are serving a community that requires you to have four program officers, but you've got two program officers. So this idea of conceptualization is not always about solving a problem, but it's that first step where you sit back and say, what are we passionate about and how do we most passionately and equitably reach that moment? And so in servant leadership, I start from this place of conceptualization, even though we say that Servant leaders respond to problems by listening first. All non think that they're great listeners and we aspire to be great listeners. But I think about like, how do you know you even should listen? You know, what has inspired you to get to the point where you say, I need to go and visit with this pastor and listen to what they're saying because their flock needs this kind of work. So if we were to focus inwardly, and so much of what I focus on in my writing and, and in speaking and in this servant leadership work. This book is about fundraising but it's really about fundraisers and internal teams taking care of themselves. One of the big traits that really needs to be happened whether you're looking at healing a process or a person is that notion of healing and it's making sure that you can put enough things on the chopping block that can go away. That's something I talk about where, you know, in one-on-one meetings with with your team, take things that the organization is doing, you know, if you're doing 5 things but you've really only got the capacity to do 3, Over time, that law of diminishing return is just going to continue. And then those people either leave or grow like mold on the outside of a building. And then the behaviors become poor. And then people see what executive leadership, what behaviors they see allow happen. It's like you see that there are a bunch of people who aren't really feeling great in the organization and the executive leadership hasn't said, we need to take a pause. You know, we need to go back to the strategic plan, figure out what one or two things we can let go of so we can focus on the right stuff. I know that was a big wordy answer, but these behaviors practiced as a continuum allows you to begin with this notion of saying there's either an issue, like a a glaring systemic or systematic problem that we need to fix or identify or address, or there's something that can be improved upon. Like we have a big budget, but yet we're still not growing the communications team or the fundraising team as much as it needs to be. So like two people are working 80 hour weeks each, as opposed to growing that team a little bit, focusing, maybe we don't need six social media managers. I'm not calling out social media managers, but it's conceptually looking at where there can be the greatest improvements so that the people that you have cultivated to be part of your organization want to stick around. I think the thing that any institution, you can define institution as a family, a community, a nonprofit, a business, those really only succeed and survive when you can create an environment where it can be self-sustaining so that you don't always have to... How does it always work in our sector? You know, get gift officer one leaves end of December, gift officer two starts January 4th. You know, there's no overlap. So there's no training. There's no way to pass knowledge between. And we sort of do that iterative thinking without focusing on how can we be a bit more self-aware that we have issues or things we need to improve on? How do we do that? We lean into listening and being empathetic. How do we do that? Et cetera, et cetera. Those are the kind of things I point to in the book as practicable ways to focus on that. Because very different than top-down, authoritative focuses in leadership models, like the great man theory, authentic leadership, transformational leadership. This is the paradoxical one. And Jim Collins, I think, wrote in his Level 5 stuff about the paradoxes of good leadership is that it's at once a verb and a noun. So much of that servant leadership has been kept very noun up in that 30,000-foot mark. But I I think we would do better if we pulled it down and said, no, being aware can be done in these two or three practical ways. Here's how we can start.
0: Well, and I think that speaks to something that you mentioned in the book, that a leader isn't necessarily someone with a high-ranking title. On page 18, I noted you, you, you had this great quote that said, like, leadership is for everyone. And so I think that's another important thing that we think about before we outline what those 10 traits are, because it's not something that you can necessarily just go hire the right CEO to implement at your organization to do.
1: Yeah, leadership for me, again. Leadership is verb-oriented. Servant leadership is verb-oriented. I sometimes talk about management and leadership in the same lane. I, I think not all leaders manage people. And we all know that there are certain managers of people who are not leaders. And for me, leadership is this notion of influence. And what can one individual do to influence a group of individuals to achieve common goals. And that definition I pull from a guy named Peter Northhouse, who's sort of written the, the textbook on leadership that we, we study in undergrad and grad programs. But it is more about that. Like when people, I always gripe, and I shouldn't because, you know, I get it. But like the, when you go to organization websites where leadership is the list of C-suite folks, and it's like, I get it. They're senior managers or senior executives, but does that title tell you anything about their vitality? Does it tell you about how they lead? Does it tell you about how they influence the organization? Many senior managers are leaders, but there are just the ways that people get to those roles. I think when people are sort of moved up without this understanding of like they were great at the widget making, but maybe not great at managing the widget makers, there's a disparity there. So I think leadership as a verb is for everyone. I have seen leadership via influence from executive assistants, from janitorial staff, from all people whose names don't appear on the leadership about us sections of the website. And I think that frame is a very wider, longer, difficult to see view, but it's so important. I remember one time in an annual review, I told one of my colleagues in his written review, I see a lot of leadership potential in you. We should discuss this. And then when he and I had our one-on-one conversation, it was very silent. I remember him kind of looking down at page three and I said, you have some concerns about the leadership thing, don't you? And he goes, yeah, I just, I mean, I I think I'm already doing a lot and I think this would be adding to my plate. And I said, when I talk about leadership potential, I'm not necessarily talking that you're doing more work. I see how great you are with the program staff. I see how people come to you for answers before they come to me because they know how much influence you have on this team. And that conversation about, oh my gosh, I am influential. That person ended up being promoted out of the organization to a role that I could not give him. In the organization. So that that's such a long view, though. And I don't know if that circled near an answer to your question, but that, that's certainly my feeling about it.
0: Yeah. Well, it speaks to something that you speak to in one of these 10 traits about the commitment to the growth of people. And it reminded me of something that one of my business mentors has said many times when we've been in conversations about you know my growth trajectory in my role, which is, you should always be working towards replacing yourself with someone else who works with you, who works under you, beside you, in that we shouldn't have this pattern at nonprofits where the gift officer leaves and there's no one that they were working with who could potentially step in, even if there's going to be a gap between Them and then gift officer number two coming in with who has all of the the resume to fulfill that role. Is there someone else that that person was working with who can stand in the gap because they were intentionally being poured into and their gifts and talents were being nurtured and grown because you have a culture at your organization of people pouring into each other versus a mindset that I think is probably all too common, which is we're all here to support the mission and to support the cause. And the pouring into your own people kind of takes a backseat.
1: It's like when I think there's a, a great friend of mine. Her name is Michelle Flutter's friend who is also here in Texas. We're both similar chief development officers for like organizations. And we talk about a lot this notion that like really good organizational management focuses on the plumbing you know, when you look at a house, it's like plumbing isn't sexy. You you should never see, hear, or think about plumbing. But you spend so much good energy like using rust resistant pipes and all like you you lead into it, you have your plumber come two or three times a year just to make sure everything is working really well. But so often we're thinking about, you know, what color gray is on the wall? What do we what do we hang? So if you think of an organization visually like a home. We think about the hardy board on the outside and and the doors and glass French doors and not. And like, who's ever thinking about the foundation or the plumbing? You don't until there's a problem. But even then, it's like, well, I have a, a family member here in Texas, down in San Antonio, that like they have this great big tree in front of their house. And like what the rule with trees generally is like as tall as the tree is, the roots are just as long. And if those roots are going under your house, you can keep replacing things in the house when those roots are upending the floor. But if you don't the root problem, if you don't get to the root problem, which is a very long range focus. And it's not very sexy. And I think part of when we think about funding relationships, like we haven't been good stewards as in house nonprofiteers of shouting that loudly enough for funders, individuals and institutions alike. It's like there was some research done over the last year that they found like evidence of one foundation in the US that was willing to support sabbaticals or something like that. It's kind of weird. We think like, why should a foundation pay for someone to take a break? And it's like, because what happens when we don't take the break? You know, when we look at all that data and that metadata, what what happens to the human brain without sleep, without rest, take that in house. Like if we have any intention of serving the people that we've set out on this these missions to serve, has to be inside. But that's such a often unpleasant, long... Uninteresting conversation to have. I find it to be the most fascinating and rewarding. But it's like, how do we raise the most money, get the most social media coverage, et cetera, et cetera? All these like very splashy, fitness-oriented things. When we're not really thinking about like the health that's underneath that fitness.
0: Well, I think we we've, we've circled around it a few times. But let's go ahead and just outline what those ten traits are.
1: Sure, I'll go through them quickly, and then I'd love to know if there's any particular you are curious about from your work, or your experiences, and I'll. In the book, they're listed with listening first. And that's, I have two frames. In the book, there's the list of 10 that begins with listening and ends with building community. They're really not in any particular order, except for the fact that in a lot of the servant leadership academia, we think of this listening first mentality. But I'll go through that list in that way. And then perhaps we can talk about how the the continuum that I'm seeing about how those traits really fit together in a start to finish way. But if we begin with listening, we can move to empathy then healing, then awareness, then foresight, persuasion, conceptualization, stewardship, commitment to the growth of people, and building community. And those are, when people listening hear that, like each one of those probably seems really 30,000 foot. Although in nonprofit world, we all think like, yeah, that makes sense. Fundraisers, program officers, we we should be the leaders in the world on each one of those 10 things.
0: I think something that was really interesting about looking at these is, I'm sure that there's someone that that you know that you work with who is probably really good at a handful of these things. And they actually kind of reminded me of some things that kind of happen in the religious space, which is these, it's kind of one of those like strengths finders types of tests, but it's called like a spiritual gifts assessment. And one of the things that they say about those is that typically you're going to have three gifts one of them is something that you could just do naturally. You could wake up, it gives you energy. A set, your, the second one will be something that like, you can do, you can perform it. It may not be your favorite thing to do, but like you do it really well. And the third thing is something that you're really talented at, but it really drains you. And so it's it reminded me a little bit of that. And so what, what, what I'm trying to get at with that is I imagine that The ideal servant leader needs to have a combination of all of these, but there may be a smaller handful of them that they're really, really gifted at. And I think when you are thinking about building a team is to kind of have an antenna out of what items out of this list is this person really showcasing the most prominently.
1: That's an interesting and helpful way to look at it. I would say... No one yet, to my knowledge, has invented like the Strengths Finder or the Disk Assessment or the VIA, like character assessment to like, and consulting agencies do this a lot where you have new teams come together and they take, it was Strengths Finder. I think Clifton changed the name of something. I, I have my thing, but it's like how you put together teams. That might be after we write the book together on The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and servant leadership, we can focus on, on the traits like that. I take myself personally as, as a good example. Like for me, the thing that I've always been, I won't say lauded, but when I look back at all my annual reviews, the things that managers have said about me is that I am collaborative. I do commit to the growth of other people, whether it serves me or not. I'm, I'm about building community, which are sort of at the, when I look at these traits and behaviors on a continuum, they're near the tail end because I think of them as very cyclical. Like you do good work in healing, listening, empathy, and all those things. And at the, at the sort of tail, more tail end of that, you have a grown community that wants to grow itself and you've got a built community that wants to continue building forward as you hire new people, as you promote other people. The areas where I have been, if I look back at my you know, Evan 1.0, 2.0, 10, 15, 20 years ago, like listening, self-awareness this idea of persuasion, like not things I was great at. And I've had to work at them and I still have to work at them all the time. I mean, if I were to take such a non-existent assessment, it would probably come back that I'm someone who more at the tail end of the vision Can see how it works together to build a community. But the inner workings, like I see the forest, but the trees sometimes a little bit difficult for me. And so I've loved using myself as a case study for this because if I can't learn and grow from it, how can I work with others on it? But the continuum mindset, where you really begin with conceptualization and go through all this stuff to end with built community, is more for you could do this one on one, you could do this with a team, you could do this with a board and others. It's looking at where we think collectively there are, it's like looking at the forest and seeing like, there's a patch of like brown trees over there. And like, you don't know what's causing the issue. Or you see a patch of trees. It's like, those should be taller, but they're not. We're keeping ourselves zoomed out and we focus in on it. So as a team, that's the way that I would see them working together to do that. But these are all things, like I would say if like you do nine of them and like you're not great at persuasion, doesn't mean you're not someone who is a servant leader in training. That's a great book too, Servant Leaders in Training. That's a real book that people can read but you know, if you go through this list and you're like, I have no vision for the future. I'm not someone who understands why trust-based stewardship is an important thing. I prefer to speak 90% of the time and only listen 10% of the time. If you go through that and you're like, huh, maybe this really is a great book. And you know, start there and then send me an email. We'll talk about how to, to work those into the continuum. But when done well, I have found that the few managers, colleagues I've worked with for and around... I can, like you said, I can point to the best of the best and say those people at some point in time in our dyad, in our relationship as colleagues, have demonstrated all of these things. It may not be all at once. Like, I mean, doing all this in one sitting would be gluttonous, I think, to an extent. But long answer to say, I think absolutely a great team has people who come with different strengths in this, but they also do all feed into one another. If we think of, committing to the growth of people as one of these core behaviors. Like if you're a great listener and someone is not, work with them on that. You know, have that uncomfortable moment where you sit for four or five seconds between a question and just practice that over and over. It's like one of the big things in fundraising, right? We, we always answer the question for our donors. You know, Leah, would you consider a gift of $5,000 dollars? I know it's a lot of money and you probably have other expenses. And then the donor's like, well, I would have done five, but now you've just deconvinced me to do 2,000. So listen silence, space, all those things.
0: Yes. Listening was definitely one of the traits when I was reading the book that, that struck me kind of personally. And it's because it's been one of those weaknesses that people have pointed out, which ironically, I run a podcast, I should be a great listener. But I think it's because it's something that I find I struggle with because I just tend to live in my head so much. So sometimes when you're just a very internal, kind of introspective person, I found it can cause me to very easily without even realizing it many times, tune out of whatever conversation or meeting or whatever I'm in because I'm off to the races, usually trying to problem solve something or think through and get to the outcome because I'm very solutions oriented. And so something that I've had to be to actively practice to overcome that has been to really, really kind of focus on mindfulness and presence. And if there's something that I I'm really tempted to go off to the races and tune out and go start problem solving for, write it down, like take a note. I can do that later when I've got the time for that. And it's something that I definitely want to work on because it makes people feel disconnected from the conversation and not listen, and not listen to So that was kind of one that I really, I really kind of latched onto. And then the other one that really stood out to me was this idea of conceptualization and it wasn't something that I intuitively understood right just from from the the term conceptualization but once i kind of read that section about it it's essentially being able to kind of pull yourself the way that i understood it was being able to kind of pull yourself out of the kind of this day-to-day and be able to see kind of the forest for the trees in your analogy and be able to see okay what's our ultimate goal what's our ultimate outcome that we're trying that we're trying to achieve like what are we all about and be able to recognize when we kind of strayed from that path. Is that is that an accurate way to think about it or are there some additional nuances to that?
1: There's always a million and one nuances, but that was, I would say, an expert distillation. And if you were to read some of the the academic heady stuff on servant leadership, conceptualization and conceptualizing is often one of, if not typically the only trait that people look at and say, even in the in his essay the servant as leader that bob greenleaf put out in 1970 when you read that conceptualization section it's very brief and it doesn't go anywhere like you get back to the end of it he talks about this it was something like a polish leader or like a danish leader who was someone that was like really for the peasants and he goes through this whole story and then at the very end of it he's like and that's conceptualization and you kind of go i think i get it but i've reread that passage so many times that when i get to the the point, I say, it really is about raising up and taking a step back to see what can be improved upon. The example that I wrote about in the book was this organization that I had worked peripherally with. There was like someone who was sending a monthly check to the organization. Like they were, made, I don't remember what the amount was, but instead of doing an online gift, they were just sending a check. But the organization, got different types of revenue. They were an earned revenue type organization also. So the check was never brought to the attention of the philanthropy team. It was just processed as earned revenue. And then like one day the donor called and asked the question and uh, the organization was at a loss. Like they didn't even know, like how would they even know to listen or talk with this donor? Because they didn't know the donor existed because that that revenue never got put in their reports. It was never popped into the CRM, et cetera, et cetera. Like truly conceptual person begins at that perspective of saying like, wait a minute, there is something here under the surface. We're looking at those that group of trees that is not growing as tall as it can be or, they're, or or they're maybe brown in the dirt and focusing on what a, a broader picture solution might be, but just admitting that there is something that is asymmetrical.
0: Something that I wanted to also that stood out to me from the list of traits was stewardship. And it's one of those kind of fundraising sort of trigger words, I think, when we think about, and it usually happens with with donors. And I think that something that you point out in the book about stewardship is because it's a very established practice area within fundraising, there's a lot of baggage that goes with that word. There's a lot of established practices that go with that word. But I love the way that you explored that topic more in the in the book. And I think it's important to talk about now because the ultimate goal of this guide is to how, how can learning about servant leadership boost philanthropy and kind of rise the tide of all of our organizations and help our missions grow more. So how does servant leadership and the practice of stewardship improve the donor's experience with a nonprofit and lead to better overall philanthropy?
1: In the stewardship mindset, the, the thing that really underpin, if if stewardship was a vertical built on top of something, it's all about trust and trust orientation. You know, there are some donors who are, you know, they want to know about the numbers, what I call the outputs. You know, I, I want to know that you had 60,000 people sign up for your Facebook account. I, I want to know that your program got in front of 300 kiddos. Like, I want to know that thing. It's often we don't think about how we talk through the impact or the outcomes. I think Deb Mills Schofield is a great thought leader in this space that talks about outputs as the different things you do and outcomes are the differences made by those things. I should have I'll be pointed to her in the book because she's wonderful. But we don't often think in the frame of how we talk about what's different because of the things we do. We might see it as reductive. I mean, some organizations, I work for a great public policy organization. Advocacy in public policy is... A multi year commitment. There's really no short fix for it. It's not like you talk with someone the next day, a bill gets passed, and then homelessness is cured. This is a long road, usually two steps forward, five steps back. But can you point to, in some of the ways you communicate with donors, can you point to, instead of talking, you know, a 40 page glossy, shiny annual report, can you distill that down? What I've done a lot in organizations is like a little simple flip up postcard that focuses on three or four, because I've worked in a lot of organizations where. Key performance metrics are really difficult to measure. Like maybe this only reached 20 people, but these 20 people were year after year living in some of the worst flood areas of the greater Houston community. And our work got them to city council. Our work got them to meet with their local leaders. Our work helped them realize that building their house up eight feet was not enough. And like what you, at the end of the day, you're saving millions, if not billions of dollars of flood insurance money that can go back into education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is huge impact. Think about the donor who gave a thousand bucks and is like, wow, I really did help build a better city. And here's how. As opposed to, you know, on page eight of the Shiny Annual Report, we list the 70 donors who gave $250 or more. Some people do. If we look at the seven faces of philanthropy, some of those people really do want to look at the list and see how we compare, you know, how we're giving to other people. But that idea of trust, like someone has entrusted us with their hard earned money, what have we done? to make a meaningful impact for the people we serve with that money. And I think sometimes those numbers are actually slimmer. It's like, we can't put a stat up there that we only engaged 100 people. But oh my gosh, we brought 100 people to city council meetings and each one of them went back and inspired their community and then, and then, and then. That's trust-based engagement. And if we can share those stories, I think we'd save a lot of paper and printing costs because we could do things a little bit more slim. And in the same world, what I talk about in in my writing is just a very simple idea of a stewardship matrix. Like, Plot out on a piece of paper. I do it in Microsoft Excel. And if people go to the website that I'll mention later, you can just download a version of it. Figure out who in your organization you have that can do these things. If you're a tiny little two or three person organization and all you can do is once a year, the three of you get together for an hour and make phone calls to everyone who gave a hundred bucks or more, that might be a really difficult hour. But write it down and codify it. So that way... When you leave, you talk about training the future folks, they come in and they know our donors over 100 bucks are used to hearing from us once a year. We can keep at that. And it's super simple stuff, but how many places do we go where there's no idea of how we steward folks? It's like, we're behind on printing the annual report. Are people really reading them? Maybe they are. I could be wrong in this, but I, the ones that I get that talk about how my 50 bucks or my 100 bucks actually didn't just give a kid a meal. That kid actually ate the meal and was able to be fortified enough to go to school where they can learn math and grow up to be a better citizen. It's, again, the servant leadership stuff writ large is all about the long road. And that's not always easy for people to see.
0: Speaking of paradoxes, there's always a paradox within nonprofit organizations of talking about positive outcomes. Because there's this mentality that, well, if we talk about too many positive outcomes, people will think our work is done. And they don't need to give to us anymore.
1: Very true. Some of the best organizations I've seen in in their email campaigns and otherwise, not the we missed our fundraising goal, help save us. There's actually that sort of like disaster based philanthropy. There's a place for it. It's very difficult to retain those donors, though. I think maybe they'll give you the 10 bucks, but can you get them to recommit in the future? To talk openly about failure or maybe some of the reasons why we feel we, you know, any organization, feel we've been doing this program for a bit. Hey, funder X, we've tested this. We've figured out against our our performance metrics that it's just not working in the right way. You entrusted us with this money. Can we have a conversation about how we rejig the grant and go back and improve? Most of the organizations I've been at, not just talking about no-cost extensions, like that's kind of like the low-hanging fruit, but can you say this program is no longer serving the community we work with and our staff no longer have the capability and the capacity to do it? Can we have a conversation about how to reframe this and possibly even look towards other funds Most of the time, I found individuals and institutions will be open to it. But again, radical candidness in in how you approach that. I think that's a very compelling thing. And I've seen those kinds of conversations build stronger relationships with donors. Because it's like, if everything's going hunky-dory, is that inspirational? So like, you know, the problem is actually still here. And what we thought was the color green was the solution. It's actually yellow. Here's why yellow is a bit more expensive. Here's the data behind it. Here's how we're putting those two things together. Would you consider being with us on that part of the journey as well? What is the worst people say is no. I guess some people could get really angry, ask for their money back and tell their friends never to give to you again. But if that happens, it's usually indicative of something worse under the surface that we're not talking about.
0: Yeah, it's that whole concept of of failing forward, right? Of like not being afraid of failure and using it as a learning experience to move forward. We just have a few more minutes left and I wanted to make sure that um, we got to kind of this last question, which is, This book really is a great jumping off point for people to learn more about the concept of servant leadership and to have some other books they can go into further their study. But you also mentioned to me that you are working on some training materials potentially to kind of help nonprofits sort of practically put these concepts to work. So can you share a little bit more about kind of how that project is going and if there's any other resources that you've made available to the nonprofit
1: space? Sure. That will be an ever-evolving thing. One of the things I did poorly, because I'm a full-time in-house non I really wanted the book to do well, but I didn't quite think through if it does well and people want more or to dive deeper, what does that next step look like? And so I did start getting a few requests from folks on how to maybe talk with boards or fundraising teams about what we do with this ingredients list that is essentially the book. Because you can read the book and say, oh, I could try list this you know the way he recommends listening i could try that but if you wanted to look at this like house servant leadership as i keep talking about it as a continuum if you want to look at it from that initial perspective of conceptualization where you can figure out like you know we have a lot of donors that are telling us because i've been in this seat where like you've got donors who are like of a certain age and they're like you know we're getting near retirement and you know my my husband and i are sitting on a lot of cash we don't know what to do with it they're indicating to you they're helping you be aware to conceptualize that there is possibly a bequest gift or some sort of estate conversation that they would be open to having but i think like you go then to like listening through empathy and so there's this continuum that i'm trying to work with people on how you take these 10 behaviors because i really do think of them as behaviors and practice them in these four categories where conceptualization is like the prime it's the first thing you do and then next is the prism being aware and how do you be aware? You, you do that by going along on the journey with people as an empathetic person, and you listen. Then you think about the prospect. Like In every organization, you can improve or fix something. And that could be either people-based or process-based. And then when you really get to the end, what I'm calling the prize is that built community. And it's moving from and to all these different servant leader behaviors and how we look at as an organization, if it's like, well, we're a fundraising team and we've got 100 prospects that we never really talk with. How can you use these behaviors to lean into that list and figure out where there's, I, I don't really enjoy the phrase low-hanging fruit, but like where are the ways that you can go from a stewardship bent and say, like you, you don't have enough people to reach the thousand folks in your database? How can you step back? You got a thousand people, 90 of them are giving every year. Let's start there. And so some of it begins with just some open conversations. But if folks are interested in going on that servant leader journey, I haven't figured out what to call it yet. I'm loosely calling it just like the servant razor roadmap which is I need some marketing help there. But it is this idea of looking at it as a framework to get you from A to B. Because I really do believe at the end of the day, the people who can subscribe to these behaviors of servant leadership, it could be the thing that boosts the industry into surviving itself.
0: I think that's something that a lot of people are thinking about right now. And my head's kind of at there have been some articles published recently about the next generation of, of donors, of millennials, Gen Z and how those donor behaviors are shifting because of just the way that I think technology has democratized our ability to be effective in the world. So if we want to have a book published, we can get it self-published. We don't necess- always have to go through a publisher to get our thinking out in the world or we can start a blog or we can start a podcast or you can go out and start your own nonprofit. There are lots of ways that I think younger donors, younger generations feel empowered to kind of go out and DIY it and kind of fix it themselves. And I think a lot of organizations are struggling with how do we capture that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and say, hey, you can actually be part of a larger organization that has been facing this problem and trying to tackle it for a long time, but we want to be able to put your passion for it to work in a way that only you can do. And of course that takes listening to your donors and and, and inviting input, which was another thing from the book that I lo- thought was so eloquent and so insightful of actually sitting down with not only your donors, but you the program beneficiaries and saying like, is the way that we're doing things actually working for you? And what ideas do you have to make our processes more effective and, and more efficient? So I mean, again, like I said, we could talk about this for two hours, but if someone wants to get a hold of your book or any other resources you have for them, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: I would say the nonprofiteers.com. You find all the great information on the book. There's some media content on there to give you, if you're on the fence about buying it or on the fence about servant leadership, just click through. There's a bunch of free resources there. And then I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well. I am the Evan Wildstein with a beard.
0: Evan, thank you so much for joining us today. And like I said, I really enjoyed reading a very thoughtful, very thorough, but impactful volume on this topic.
1: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave a rating and review as that helps others discover the show.